0: This evening I'd like to explore with you the third of the three characteristics of existence. We've looked at the first two. Anicca, impermanence, the truth of that. And dukkha, its cause and its end. Suffering, its cause and its end. This evening, I'd like to explore a bit anatta, which is selflessness or no self, or it's got lots of different ways of uh, describing it or defining it uh, emptiness, uh, voidness. I'd like to begin uh, this evening a little bit differently by asking you to close your eyes, and um, we'll engage in a, a couple of images, visualizations, together. Imagining an enormous net, an infinite net woven of some kind of weaving, net-like material. And at the apex of each place where the strings of the net come together, there's a brilliant, highly reflective crystal or gem or jewel And just imagining this to the best of your ability, some sense of it or some actual image of it in the mind. This enormous, kind of infinite net with the brilliant gem at the apex of each place where the string comes together. Brilliant jewel of an infinite variety of colors. Each of these jewels or gems has countless facets. And so each of these jewels or gems reflects in itself every other gem in the net, in its countless facets. And in itself, every other gem is reflected. In other words, everything is reflecting everything. Each gem reflects every other gem. All reflecting each other. We could say that in this image, each gem contains all other gems. To look at one of the crystals at any point is to see the reflection of all of the others, at all of the other points in the net. Radiantly, endlessly alive. And now let this image dissolve, keeping your eyes closed. And now in your mind's eye, visualize a clear, empty, endless sky. And now begin picturing a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in the sky. And the clouds are moving in the sky, they're changing shape, they're dissolving, and new clouds are appearing and disappearing in this image, this visualization. Letting the mind rest in the openness of the sky, not fixating on the clouds, but being aware of their arising and changing and passing away. Now let this image dissolve, fade away. And we'll just sit for a moment, letting the mind open wide, letting the awareness be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. you can either keep your eyes closed and listening or you can open them and listen as I talk some. And this is from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dharma. Whoever (coughs) practices this truth has practiced all the Dharma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dharma. There's a, a wonderful metaphor that's used sometimes Uh, in relation to anatta, selflessness. The metaphor of a wave, or waves. And if the wave is seeing itself, seeing its form as a With a beginning and an ending, it will always live in fear, fear of birth and death. But if the wave sees, understands itself as water, then it's freed, really. It's freed from birth and death. Each wave, of course, begins and ends, is born and dies. But the water keeps flowing, in a sense, is free from birth and death, as a metaphor for this understanding of anatta, selflessness no cell, emptiness of cell. This is a a poem from a Chinese sage from the 8th century A.D. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self. No separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. I'd like to also share some words from another perspective, from the Native American perspective. In 1852, uh, Chief Seattle um, was uh, told by the American government that um, uh, the, the government wanted to buy the, some of the land, buy land, from the Native people, from the Native Americans. And so uh, Chief Seattle wrote a letter to, uh, to President Washington, or to the, whoever the president was in 1852, I don't know that, but to, to the government. And I'd just like to uh, quote a few things that he said, which is really saying this same thing as the Chinese sage said in, a, in its particular way. How can you buy or sell the sky, the land? The idea is strange to us. If we don't own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? We know the sap which courses through the trees as we know the blood that courses through our veins. We're part of the earth and it's part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters. The bear, the deer, the great eagle, these are our brothers. The rocky crest, the juices in the meadows, the body heat of the pony, and the human being all belong to the same family. The shining water that moves in the streams and rivers is not just water, but the blood of our ancestors. Remember that the air is precious to us, that the air shares its spirit with us, with all life it supports. The wind that gave our grandfather his first breath also receives his last sigh. The wind also gives our children the spirit of life. This we know. The earth does not belong to us. We belong to the earth. All things are connected like the blood that unites us all. Human beings did not weave the web of of life. We are merely a strand in it. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. So the same thing that was said in the 8th century essentially by the Chinese sage. The Buddha said it in a thousand different ways. Over a period of years in my childhood, and actually on through adolescence and somewhat into my teen years, I had a recurring dream. I had it many, many times, and the dream was that um, I was standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking at the mirror, at my, looking in the mirror at myself, and continuing, continuing endless images, back and back, and smaller and smaller and smaller, of myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself, looking at myself. In the mirror endlessly Mm -hmm. and on and on. Mm -hmm. I had it, that dream, so many times and so I remember it. I haven't had it for years but I do remember it and it always amazed me when I had it and of course it fascinated me and uh, intrigued me (laughs) and it perplexed me and uh, I was always very interested in it and I could never figure it out intellectually but it was somehow informative every time. And it came up when I uh, thought about giving a talk about anatta. And I'm not going to analyze the dream, but I think the dream says says something. (laughs) There really aren't so very many uh, fundamental or root principles of the Dharma. the the Buddha Dharma. At one point the Buddha said that he was teaching what he called a single handful. There's a story in the text, the Samyutta Nikaya, that tells us one day as the Buddha was walking through the forest (coughs) with a small group of his disciples, his students, he picked up a handful of leaves (coughs) that had fallen to the ground and he asks asked the monks that were with him um, to decide whether which was a greater amount, the leaves in his hand or all the leaves in the forest. Well, of course, obviously, they, they said that there were many, many, many more leaves in the forest, that the difference was incomparable. So if we just for a moment imagine and kind of put ourselves into the truth of this scene, 2,500, 2,600 years ago and just simply and clearly see how incredibly huge the difference is. And the Buddha went on to say to his disciples in that, during that walk, he said that similarly those things that he had realized were of a, a great amount, very, very vast amount equal to all the leaves in the forest he said but he said however that which was that which is necessary to know those things that should be taught and understood those things that should be practiced were equal to the number of leaves in his hand so really there are not very many fundamental or root principles of the Dharma. And the vastness of understanding unfolds from these root principles, the things that should be taught, as the Buddha said, and practiced. Basically, uh, it's As we understand it, the Buddha refused to deal with those things that don't lead to the end, that don't lead to the extinction of suffering, the extinction of dukkha. This constant underlying and often overt experience of unsatisfactoriness, and all of the confusion and the anguish connected with this. He basically refused to deal with with anything that didn't relate to that. He really wouldn't discuss questions that were brought up to him that didn't really deal directly with this understanding, understanding confusion, anguish, this pervasive suffering. The Buddha wasn't a philosophical teacher. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, really a way of life. He was really a teacher of practices that lead directly to the understanding of the basic natural truths, the way of things, the natural laws, The wisdom that brings a natural ease of being. That brings one out of living in the midst of constant dissatisfaction. So the Buddha wasn't a teacher of philosophy, he was a very practical teacher. He was a teacher of a way of life, he was a teacher of peace. And it wasn't an intellectual approach, it was very practical, a practical path we could say, to peace, a practical path to inner peace. So, questions that he was very willing to deal with, such as, is there dukkha? Is there suffering? What's the cause of it? How can it be extinguished? How can it be ended, quenched? Questions that bring answers that are very recognizable as true to the listener because of one's experience as a living being and that one can see more and more clearly along the way of practice, along the way of study, along the way of living one's life in the midst of study and practice, until the answers are really deeply and fully understood for oneself. The Buddhist teachings are not about blindly believing anything. If one understands to the extent of being able to extinguish dukkha, that's really the ultimate understanding. And as I mentioned last night, of the Dalai Lama's description of realization, the ending of all afflictive emotions and the ending of all the seeds of afflictive emotion. With this understanding one knows very surely one knows without any doubt one sees without doubt that there's no self, that there's no separate self and that there's not anything that there's nothing belonging to self. There's just the feeling of I, the feeling of mine, that arises because of our being seduced, our being entranced, our being captivated, being deluded, basically, by the beguiling nature of all the experiences through the six (coughs) sense doors. It's not that we don't have them, but we've become entranced, captivated, deluded by them, misseeing, misunderstanding. The Buddha's primary, essential teachings actually aim to inform us that there's no person who is self. No, nothing belongs to a self. There is nothing that is a separate self. The sense of self is really only a false understanding. It's really a mistaken confusion of this ignorant mind. Ignorant meaning ignoring the truth that can really be directly experienced, can be directly seen, can be directly known. It's not a belief. It's not a philosophy. It's something that we can directly know through experience. Within the natural process of body-mind, there are various mechanisms, we could say, that that process, that interpret, that transform all the sense data that comes into us that we have contact with, that we first have contact with and then comes in. If these processes happen in particular conditioned ways, they uh, give rise to what one teacher called foolishness. <laughs> We're fooled, basically deluded into thinking, or into thinking and feeling that there's a self, that there are things that belong to self. This is a, a little poem that uh, speaks of this in its particular way. It's called Ego Over Easy. <laughs> Puffed up ego. Big car ego, fast running ego, there goes my baby ego, holy, holy ego. I'm so small and weak ego, very learned ego. Almighty dollar ego, beauty mark ego, why I write this poem ego, how tough I am ego, good sailor ego, big heart ego, powerful healer ego, can change the world ego, can change a light bulb ego. (laughs) Ego that picks things up. Ego that puts things down. Painted on a canvas, ego. Paint on a wall, ego. Ego Ego unimagined. Imagine that ego. (laughs) Place your order, folks, at this restaurant. The food eats you. The waiters are very attentive. The price you pay is the insightful eye of truth. We could all write that poem in our own particular formations of ego or self <laughs> if the natural process of um, interpreting or, or the natural process that, that 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 processes all the sense data that comes in if it functions correctly, we could say, if it functions in conjunction with reality, that's what I mean by correctly, these feelings of self, separate self, things belonging to self, don't arise. And the process, the correct process, in conjunction with reality, is called mindfulness. That's what leads to understanding, what leads to wisdom what leads to what, in some contexts, are called the original mind. This spacious clarity of being, original mind. This fundamental clear knowing and true seeing, in that there is no I, no mine, no me. So we train ourselves through our practice. We train our mind. We could say we're, we're training our mind towards understanding the impersonality of things. And again and again and again, we view what's arisen, what comes, what happens. Our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, and we see them as they are in their process, in their interconnectedness, directly, experientially, over and over and over and over again. And it's really an impersonal process, even though it's all based on our particular conditioning. The process is basically the same. The conditioning is particular. And it can uproot. It's very powerful. It can uproot this very deep-rooted habit, this egocentric sense of this self-centered egocentric sense, as we begin to see it over and over and over and over again. It reduces the easy-over ego. (laughs) And finally, if we keep practicing, it's eliminated. So we we pay attention to what arises, body-mind experience. And we hold on to it, or we touch it, or we stay with it just long enough to consider it clearly, deeply, to know it, to know our experience. And then we let it go. And in that moment, if we see it clearly and we let it go, in that moment we're free. That's a moment of freedom. It's sometimes said that a moment of pure mindfulness is a moment of freedom. So this matter of I, of mine, and, in modern language, ego, uh, we could say selfishness, self-centered existence, is really the single most essential issue of Buddhism, of the Buddhist teaching. He said in many ways, many times, this sense of I, this sense of mine, The sense of me is the one thing that must be let go of. Seen through is maybe a better way to say it experientially. Seen through for a, a true freedom, for an ease of being, for no dukkha, for no suffering, for enlightenment. And so, It quite naturally follows that this principle, that within this principle, lies the understanding of all of the Buddha's teaching. And I'd like to again read what I read a while ago. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, as I, or me, or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dharma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dharma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dharma." Letting go of clinging, attachment. I'd like to talk just a little bit about the word attachment, because I think um, it's sometimes misunderstood. or not clearly understood in relation to uh, the teachings. Sometimes the word dispassion is used for non-attachment. And that's often, very often misunderstood. I I was quite intrigued by a definition that I saw once that talked about non-attachment, talked about dispassion and non-attachment. And it defined it as disinterested engrossment. And I, 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 that gave me a lot of food for thought. I thought it was a very interesting way to say it. Mm-hmm. So I explored it, <laughs> both intellectually and in my practice. What does that mean to me, experientially? Disinterested engrossment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could say that non-attachment or dispassion, from this perspective, disinterested engrossment, is free from self-centered interest. From free from self-centered interest and involvement, free of ego interest, free of ego involvement, free of self. This thread of self has been pulled out. So, so non-attachment or um, dispassion is a non-self-centered presence. A non-self-centered presence. A presence that isn't in pursuit of our very own personal advantages, advantages. Things like power, or pleasure, or status, or prestige, or recognition. I mentioned this a little bit last night. Those are all actually self-centered. Attachment is being absorbed in one's self, one's own needs, one's own pleasure, etc., one's own potential power, one's own prestige, one's own recognition, all of those things. And being interested in that and absorbed in that quite exclusively. That's self-centered existence. That's attachment. That's what it means. So non-attachment is being non is is being is not being self-absorbed not being self-absorbed but very interested in a disinterested way <laughs> without self-involvement without self-centeredness and I did tell the story about when I gave birth for the first time about 36 years ago For me, that was the very first time I really recognized that experience. I had to get myself out of the way, and I was incredibly interested in what was going on, Mm -hmm. and very involved, and it was very intense. But I was out of it, basically, really out of it. So much so that it wasn't painful. I never felt pain, but I felt intensity, intense sensation, intense experience. Because I, for whatever reason, was able to step out. And it was a tremendous learning experience. So non-attachment, not-self, not-self-centered existence, disinterested engrossment. From the absolute perspective, uh, which is not so easy to talk about and not so easy to understand when we speak of it intellectually, but this is what we're doing. So, <laughs> um, The only thing that sustains, and we explored that in some of our images, particularly the second image of the sky. With the clouds arising and passing, changing, dissolving, coming and going, and keeping the focus of attention on the emptiness, basically. The boundless spaciousness of sky. The only thing that sustains, if we could call it a thing, is emptiness, voidness, no self. Silence and sound is a good example. All sound arises out of silence and dissolves back into silence. It's gone. Every word, every thought, every bark, every chirp, <laughs> every siren, every sound of the wind. It dissolves back into silence, and yet it happens, and we can hear it. A friend of mine um, wrote me a letter <coughs> not very long ago. Um, her mother had died, and uh, she wrote me this beautiful letter about the experience of the death and. And then afterwards, and, uh, she said, I'll just read a little bit of it. She said, one thing about watching a parent die is, awareness, is the awareness it brings to me about my own mortality. I've been going through family pictures, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, stepfather, stepmother, all their houses and stuff, all gone, a vanished world, very Buddhist realization, I suppose she says. A very powerful realization. Sometimes the loss, or seeming loss, of what we think is ours, what we think we need, is really the potential opening to the truth of life, the truth of who we are, we, me, I'm going to use me, I, (laughs) not really defined in, in truth, not really defined by anything, anything outside of myself. We are constantly defining ourselves, looking for who we are in the mirror of you, or you, or this, or that, relationship, things, and we we take it on. That's how who I am. But the truth is, we're none of it, and we're all of it. Mm-hmm. We're really not defined by anything solid, as something solid, by something solid, outside of ourselves. There's a a short piece from another Native American uh, uh, teaching. It's from a piece called A Cherokee Feast of Days. And this piece uh, of writing comes from uh, Autumn, when when they speak about Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. When We learn when we watch a tree it constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. We're constantly being shed for of excess. There's pruning going on all the time yet we often keep trying to grab, or hold on to the leaves as they fall. Whatever, As a, a metaphor, <laughs> our hair, <laughs> our skin, <laughs> our body. Uh, but the pruning's going on. Can we accept it? And we still be alive until we're not. This is from Ajahn Chah, Thai Meditation Master. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll you'll know and have complete peace and freedom. And so we pay attention to our experience. Seeing it go, seeing it come, seeing it go. And learning to let it be, let it go. Thinking, our most seductive experience actually. The most compelling and seductive experience of humans, I think for most humans. I'd like to explore it just a little bit. There's a thought. And there's the knowing of the thought, the content. That's mostly our experience. Or being lost in it, we could say, knowing the content there's a difference between being aware of the thought and just thinking. And it's an immense difference, huge difference. Normally we're quite identified with our thoughts, with our emotions, which are based in thought, actually. And we know the story, we know the story around the emotion, we know that there's we're feeling anger or fear or sadness or whatever it is. But being aware of it itself is rare, and that's what we're practicing. Normally we're quite identified, and we think that we are these thoughts. And so the practice is, in a sense, to step back and to know our thoughts, know our emotions, know these mental states, these energies, see them clearly in their particulars and in their universal characteristics. They're very ephemeral. They're transparent. They're like a rainbow. Not only thoughts, but the same with sensations. Sounds. Sounds it's actually easier to to know. We're not so identified often with the sounds. So that's one of the reasons for paying attention to sound. And breath. It's very ephemeral. Transparent. And we need to practice to see it that way. Because we often solidify, grab onto and identify with. There's no thought, no sensation, no sound, no experience through any of the six sense doors that's ultimately deeply satisfying, no matter how beautiful or how powerful they are because they are so ephemeral. There's no solidity. They're basically nothing, (laughs) even though we experience them, and maybe intensely at times. But they're not ever, they can't possibly be ultimately deeply satisfying. So, one has to get to know the thought to get to know the emotions, and then not identify. And then also not identify with the knower. Maybe that's a little more difficult. Not identify with the knower. The knower isn't somebody either. The knower is not a solid, static somebody. The knower is also a rainbow. And we just keep practicing and keep practicing. We can't get it intellectually, and we keep seeing in small ways over and over and over again. And we start to taste it. This this really was the Buddha's greatest insight. And this this knowing, this insight, this understanding, not intellectually but experientially, of emptiness, of voidness, of not-self, it points really directly to, the, to freedom, to liberation. I'm not the feeling, I'm not the emotions, I'm not the thought, I'm not the sensations, I'm not the knower. There's no I, no me nothing belonging to I, or me. And so we keep practicing, and we keep going in a sense, and this is my mirror dream, we keep going further and further back, back and back and back and back, more and more open, more empty. And our consciousness, our awareness, becomes more and more spacious more open, more empty. We could say back to the source, the source of all things, this spaciousness. And we we look in. We look at ourselves in the mirror, we could say, of our experiences. And instead of finding some solid static something, some solid I, some solid me, some fixed, eternal entity. We just get back and keep going back and back into this vastness, this spaciousness of being, spaciousness of mind, of being, that's totally interconnected with all living things, with all life, in every form. So in this, there's no I. And there's no other. There's no duality in this. There's no separation. As long as we're in the realm of of I and other, that separated place, we're deluded. And there's actually huge problems that come from that. I think the greatest problems come from that. The greatest suffering, the deepest suffering that we have comes from this, from this delusion. Because we have this sense of being separate, of being isolated, a separate entity. And I think it's really the cause of the fundamental human suffering, a very deep existential loneliness that human beings feel at the core until they don't anymore, until we taste this truth of not-self so. it's a very basic ignorance ignoring ignorance meaning ignoring the truth and it's not on an intellectual level it's the ignorance of not knowing the ignorance of believing that sense of i and that everything else is not I. And this is important in in the way that we act. There's me, I, and everything else is not me, not I. And we we have this uh, kind of attraction or aversion. We have this desire or aversion, attraction or aversion to all the not I's, certain not I's, not all of them, certain not I's, not just people but all kinds of not eyes, <laughs> not-me's, with this underlying feeling, this kind of undertow feeling that somehow, if we get it, these not-me's, that it will abate this deep loneliness, this existential loneliness. And it can't. It won't. In some sense, I mean, the deepest sense, it's really the source of all of the greed in the world, our own personal greed, and all of the greed in the world. It's what causes the deepest suffering, and it's the source of the fire, the burning of greed. It's also the source of all the hatred and the fear in the world, the burning of that. It all stems from this root, this basic misunderstanding of I-me, and not I, not me, and separation, duality. So once we taste the truth, even just a little taste, that the nature, our true nature, the nature of existence, which is our true nature, is beyond sensations, it's beyond feelings, beyond thoughts, beyond emotions. That our existence, the true nature, the truth of it is, it's incredibly vast, incredibly spacious, and totally interconnected with all other beings. That we're always completely and totally in relationship. There is nothing but relationship then this feeling of isolation, this feeling of loneliness, this feeling of separation, and all of the fears, all of the hopes that are connected with these feelings, they begin to fall away. In a moment of touching it, they're not there. And we learn something in that moment. It takes a lot of moments, though, to really believe it, because we have such strong habits, such strong conditioning. It's such an incredible truth. I mean, such an incredible relief, I should say, when you touch this truth. And it really is possible to know it. And in fact, when you have, as I said before, a moment of pure, clear mindfulness, you know it. You don't know it intellectually, but you know it, and you've touched it, even if it's just for a split second. And that informs you, that informs us. It's perfectly natural, of course. It's the nature of things. It's not something weird or strange or ah, mysterious even. It feels mysterious until we touch it. It's always available. Unfortunately, um, most of us are are kind of lazy and kind of fixed in our ways. And we get quite fascinated with uh, The show of this life, uh, and quite habituated to our fascinations. And so most of the time we forget, we just don't bother taking a look, because we're quite entranced, we're quite seduced and fascinated. And so we don't see. We live in ignorance, we live ignoring. We kind of live in a dream. In order to wake up out of the dream, we have to, we could say, renounce our habits of living in daydreams, of living in dreams, living in hopes, living in fantasies, renounce living in memories, renounce living in the midst of fears, renounce living in the midst of all of the mental chatter that we spend a lot of our life in. We live a lot of our life in our mind in all that mental chatter. Renunciation is often misunderstood. I think the real depth of renunciation is about renouncing all that. It's about actually staying on the positive side. Not that renouncing is negative, either. But on the other side of it, it's about staying with a commitment to practice. Staying with practicing being receptive to the truth. Staying with practicing seeing clearly. Not adding anything to what is and not needing to take away anything from what is. It's re- that's really what's meant by letting go what Ajahn Chah meant when he talked about letting go, dropping all of the extras and going for the truth, coming right into it from the heart and opening to life, seeing the truth of it, the truth of ourself. The Buddha talked about abandoning what's not yours. And I I really like that term that he used. He said said very directly to his monks, Abandon what's not yours. So consider that, abandon what's not yours. Like the tree that sheds its excess. I won't go into listing all the things that aren't ours that we should Mm -hmm. abandon. (laughs) We've been practicing it over and over. A friend of mine, um, uh, some years ago, a few years ago, went uh, decided that he uh, should go to see a, a counselor. He wanted a therapist, but he wanted a kind of spiritual therapist, and he'd never done anything like that before. He'd never had a spiritual teacher, he'd never done any kind of therapy. But he was telling me this, and he said that he, he just felt really weighted down by his uh, by all his attachments, his karmic predicaments, and it was feeling—he was feeling really uncomfortable with it all. And he somehow needed to explore what this discomfort was, what all this stuff was. And he, he didn't really understand it, but he knew he needed some something different to do, something different. So he called up this person who he'd heard was uh, could probably he could probably work with around this. And uh, he asked her. He said he was really nervous about coming, and uh, he'd never done anything like this before. And he he asked her um, if she could kind of give him a little hint about what they were going to do. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, or you know, was there he could, could he prepare himself in some way? He, he was very anxious, although he really wanted to do it. So she said, "Well, I can't really tell you what we're going to do." And he said, "I." She said, "I can't really tell you." how to prepare yourself, but I suggest you bring something with you that um, symbolizes in some way why you're coming. So my friend arrived at the office, the therapist's office, uh, and he arrived with um, all these um, suitcases and (laughs) bags and uh, as many as he could carry, um, all different colors, all different shapes, different sizes. As, and he carried in a whole load and he stacked it down stacked it put it on the floor and stacked it up and he went out to the car and he got another load <laughs> and then he got another load and he stacked them all up in front of him and uh, you know around him as he was sitting in the waiting room and the receptionist was kind of he said she was <laughs> looking at him and wondering well this guy's really we don't know what's going on here and he was kind of peeking over the top and she, he didn't say anything to her until he brought all three loads in and stacked them up. And she said, um, are, are you here to see so and so? And he said, Yes. So she called up on the phone to the intercom and said, So and so's here to see you, with a little strange question in her voice. And uh, he said, uh, She said, Okay, you can go in. And he proceeded, load three loads, to take it all in <laughs> to the therapist's office and set it down. And he said, this is why I'm here. There wasn't anything inside any of these suitcases. They were all empty. Mm-hmm. And he borrowed them, he said. He got as many as he had from his house, but that wasn't enough. So he went to his family and borrowed. He went to his friends and borrowed until he felt like he had enough mm-hmm. to take. And that was his his symbol of why he went to see her. And then he proceeded to tell me that... Uh, Symbolically, you know, he said, "I opened them all up. There wasn't anything inside, and uh, I decided I didn't need to open them all." Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, it was a wonderful story. I thought <laughs> very appropriate. So this emptiness, this not self, this voidness, this emptiness of self, this non-self-centered place to live from. It can be practiced and it can be learned and can be understood. The retreat I think I mentioned, I did a retreat in January at home alone and uh, besides um, in the morning every day I would Chant the refuges and the precepts. I also, um, a number of times during the day, said out loud, Nothing is to be, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine, etc. I said that a few times a day. And I also said out loud a particular teaching and it might not be worded exactly the way the Buddha worded it, but I use the word shunyata, or, um, uh, that's the word I used, but emptiness, no self, selflessness, is to be known, is to be clearly seen, is to be realized, is to be lived with. This I am, I understand. And I said it over and over and over, and uh, it can be learned, it can be practiced, it can be known, it can be understood. And that's what we're doing here, basically, that's what we're practicing. I'd like to close this evening's talk with a poem by Rainier Maria Rilke called Buddha Inside the Light. The core of every core, the kernel of every kernel, an almond, held in itself, deepening in sweetness. All of this, everything, right up to the stars, is the meat around your stone, except my bow. Oh yes, you feel it, how the weights on you are gone. Your husk has reached into what has no end, and that is where the great saps are brewing now. On the outside, a warmth is helping, for high, high above, your own suns are growing immense, and they glow as they wheel around. Yet something has already started to live in you that will live longer than the suns. Let's sit together for just a few moments.